to us. And how this has been the continual story of all your people in all of time. Lord, help us understand this story. Father, be with us this morning. Be with those who are here and be with those who are not here. Comfort us in your love. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So as I said, you should. Um, there are handouts in the back. They printed as two pieces of paper. It was supposed to be a front and a back, and, and it didn't um, do that. Um, but today, I want to do two, two things. One, we are going to talk about parts of the Old Testament in relation to the story, um, the, the overarching story of all the Scripture, um, the big picture. Um, and sometimes I call that the meta-narrative, right? We, 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 the overarching story is sometimes called the meta-narrative of all the Scripture. Um, and we're also going to talk about um, the Old Testament as... Um, Christian scripture. Um, I'm going to talk about that probably the least out of everything. Um, and I hope in that handout I gave you kind of a grid on how we can do that. But we'll talk about that when we, once we get there. But I want, also wanted to open up just for questions on you. So next week, um, or let, let me say this, every week so far in January and February, we have been doing preliminary work of how to understand the, the meta-narrative, the grand picture, the grand story of all of Scripture, right? So we've talked about God's plan in history, Christ in the Old Testament, the promises of God, warnings and cursings, the covenants, the offspring, Christ is the last Adam, shadows, prefigures, and types, Christ is mediator. And recently we've been talking about just a, an overall broad theology of the Old Testament, these are categories that will help us be, be better readers of the Old Testament. We have to understand that the, the, the Old Testament presents a, a picture, a story of God, of a single God, monotheism, that he created all things, that his creation rebelled against him in the fall, that our God is a God of election and covenant, that he chooses a people to bless the world. This is, this is what, specifically what we see in Abraham. God chose someone and his family and his descendants to be a conduit of his blessing. We looked at what it looks like to be a covenant member. And last week we looked at what a biblical and really an Old Testament eschatology looked like. Eschatology meaning that the story is going somewhere. Right? And we, then we talked about in New Testament terms how we have a realized eschatology, promises that we already receive now in Christ. Um, and if you, if you, I meant to spend more time in Scripture than I did. If you want to go look at a realized eschatology, go to Romans 6. It, and I'm not going to talk about it now, but that's what I meant to talk about because it talks about us being baptized into Christ and it talks about our union with Christ and it talks about how we are, should our old self, our sin, should be dead. And Paul actually uses the words and the terms that it is now dead and that we are able to experience the resurrection life now. That's the inaugurated eschatology. That's the, that's the part of the story that we get to participate in now 
through the life of the Spirit. Right? And so I say all that. Does anyone have any questions about anything that we've covered in the past six to eight weeks? I actually don't know. I should have looked. My guess is that no one's actually going to ask a question other than Mr. Larry or David. Um, um, I just wanted to take a second because some of it has been repetitive. Some of it has been really hard to kind of distinguish, you know, what do you mean? Um, And I wanted to give you all a chance before we jump in um, to ask questions about anything that we've covered. And I don't have the book, um, the orange book. If you have any questions about what we've covered so far, because next week we're jumping into, um, Bill is going to be teaching about how the Pentateuch prepares us for the rest of Scripture. And then the weeks following, we're actually going to look at the different genres of Scripture and how we can be good readers of those different genres. Um, So today's kind of the last preliminary before we jump in for the rest of the semester um, of how to read the rest of Scripture. Whatever the, the outline in the back says. Okay. I, I don't know. Okay. Hopefully by the end we'll read the whole book. I think, I think by the end we'll read the whole book. So, great. So, no questions, hearing none. Okay. So, parts of the Old Testament in relation to the story. So, th- this is the story. This is a Summation of the story. There is one God who made mankind to know him and who made a good world for them to live in, to rule over, and to enjoy so that they could love him and serve no other. But Adam and Eve, the parents of all mankind, disobeyed God and set loose the power of evil in themselves and in all their offspring, a power that will be observed all around us every day that is also inside of us. But God never gave up on his original creation. He chose Abraham to be a channel who he would, through whom he would heal all of mankind. Abraham's family would become Israel. And, they were, and to be a channel that they would use to heal mankind. Oh, that's what I just read. They chose Israel, were supposed to be an advertisement to the rest of the families of the earth of what it looks like when the maker of heaven and earth restores a people into the proper functioning relationship so that they too might want to live in relationship with this God. The purpose of setting up Israel as a nation in the first place was to put on display for the whole world to see the love and wisdom and wholeness of the one true God. And the tragedy was that most of the time they did not live out that advertisement. So that's the story told and retold and retold. And we see in there, we see monotheism, we see creation, we see election and covenant, we see the fall, we see the eschatology, we see what it looks like to be a covenant membership that God has committed himself to a people and that our privilege, it is our privilege to be members of that people. And at the same time, my well-being is tied to the well-being of the whole people 
and I contribute to that whole by my own faithfulness. God has kept his promises as my very existence as a Christian shows. Besides that, I realize that the people receive God's blessing not simply for themselves, but to be a blessing to the world. I'm, I'm on a stage in this story that is different from the Old Testament in that Jesus is on David's throne is, and is about to work the, the bringing of the Gentiles into his kingdom, a kingdom that is no longer defined by a particular geographical or political boundary, Israel itself, so that we can carry the story forward, not just personal faithfulness, but also by contributing to the expansion of the kingdom and by evangelizing the lost. The, this is the story. This is the meta-narrative that we continue to see over and over and over in the Bible. And so the, the, first, the first question that we, we must ask ourselves is, who are the people of God? Right? And so this is what a, a troublesome question that we have to answer sometimes. Because sometimes what we want to do is we want to say, that's it. Look at that. That person, they are the people of God, or this people is the per, per, are the people of God. But what I just read is that most of the time in the Old Testament, it's actually hard to see that. We like clear, defined people groups. We like things to fit in a box. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the people didn't fit inside this tidy box. And so the people of God are, is given as a definition in Exodus 15, 13. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to be your holy abode. God's people are the redeemed. The people who have experienced salvation. And as Westerners, we like to overemphasize our individuality and set it against the whole. And we have to avoid three mistakes when we talk about the people of God. Typically, especially when we read the Old Testament, when we see God redeeming people, it's our, um, it's our desire. It's what we constantly do is that we actually put our individual names in the place of Israel. God saved me. God's redemption was made for me. Another mistake that we can make is that um, we actually only see it as a corporate entity, that we only see it as a group of people. The third mistake that we have to avoid is to imagine that the particular person doesn't matter in the whole. So this, this is why I, I, have, I have my whiteboard, is I want to draw, draw, draw some circles. Um, so as, as we know, because um, we understand all of the biblical theology of the history of redemption, um, is that circumcision was given as an outward sign to the people of God, right? And so, so God, here's my line. You'll always, this is... My professor wrote this in seminary, is that we have God above the line. Everything that's below the line 
is what exists and what God has created. God is the only thing that is above this line. And God is always coming down. This arrow is never points up. That's what the people of Babel got wrong. The arrow always comes down. And so what we have is God coming to redeem a people. Right? The outward sign to be included in this people was circumcision. But we all know that circumcision was supposed to foster an inward circumcision. This is what Paul or this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 10:16. Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It was meant to be a physical sign of a spiritual reality. You've probably heard me say that before. Circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. The members of the people were to embrace the covenant in their hearts, to believe in the promises of grace, to practice repentance and confession, to give their lives over to the, to the molding, to the molded accounting, to be molded according to the image of their maker. Right? But sadly, what we see is that this, wasn't, this didn't happen throughout the Old Testament. Right? So we have this circle, the people of God, and we have all of these individuals living within the people of God. All of these people received the sign of circumcision. But in reality, what happened was that there were only certain people within the covenant community that actually laid claim to the covenant promises. This circle within a circle is what we typically call the remnant. The people who actually embraced God, who actually lived out a life of repentance, who actually desired to be part of the covenant community, rather than the people who just live there because this is a nice place to live. It's, yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, that's why I drew the circle. Is so the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament, right? And so um, in ecclesiology, in, in our understanding of the church, is that especially in... Hmm, do I want to say that? Um. What I like about Presbyterianism is that we make room for the, both of these circles. We understand that there are going to be people who profess faith, who receive no longer this, the sign of circumcision, but receive the sign of baptism, and live within this community, but that they don't actually believe by faith. Right? And so... Um, what we have, sometimes we call this the visible church and the invisible church. We are only able to operate under the visible church. 
if you tell me you believe in Jesus, I have to take you at your word. Whether you truly believe in Jesus is between you and God. And he will sort that out. But this is also the reality of the Old Testament community. This is the Old Testament people circumcised, and this is the uncircumcised heart. You want me to distinguish between these two groups, don't you? Well, I mean, I'm just I, saying, I can't do that. Have there always been, <laughs> there always been even in ancient Israel? Because I've always, I've also heard people that have tried to argue, and I won't start talking, and you tell me. Have tried to argue that it's the faithfulness of that priest counts for all this. So you have a person out there who's doesn't believe any of it, but he is a Jew. To be part of the faithful community, you have to lay claim to the covenant promises. If you lay hold of the promises of God, you are part of this group. See, this is where we like our tight boxes. We like to look at the Old Testament and say, well, Saul was here and David was here. And Solomon was... Back and forth. Back. Jonah. Right? Jonah in chapter 1, 3, and 4 is here, and somehow in chapter 2 he's here. This is the hard part. Me, and my, me until I was about 17 or 18 was here. Me from 18 to about 24 was somewhere in here. Right? And this is what we see in the Old Testament, is that God continually made promises just like he said to Nineveh. Repent. If you're in this group, or for Nineveh, if you're outside this group, come in. I'm, I'm saying that this is, more, this is a more fluid circle than we like to believe through Christian experience, right? Some mornings, is it hard for you to believe that you're saved? Ooh. Yeah, so you're wanting me to distinguish between the visible and invisible, and I can't do that. No, we can't see it. Right. But historically, God brought judgments upon this people to reveal where they were. Right? And he does so 
Right. This is what he did in the desert after Sinai. This is what he did the oppressions when he allowed exterior kings to come and conquer his people throughout the Old Testament and in the judges. Lord, help my unbelief. And often in the Old Testament writers, um, they, they describe Zion. This is Zion, right? So we see this in Isaiah 1, um, 27 and 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. That's talking about the people of God. That's not talking about the people of God and Ninevites. Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. That there will be a purification of the people. The actors in here will be cut off. We see Jesus do this very same thing in John chapter 15 when he talks about the true vine. There are those who are attached to him that do not produce fruit, and they will be cut off. So why am I talking about this um, when it comes to story? I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. So Deuteronomy 6, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going, to, going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all its statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may greatly that you may multiply greatly does anyone hear the, the the language of eden there as the lord the god of the fathers he promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey that sounds like eden hero israel 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and, they shall, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your, ha- on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets of your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, the house full of all the good things that you did not fill, the cisterns that you did not dig, the vineyards and the olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, and then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, by, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go out after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Least the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. I'm going to stop right there. This is who God is, and this is what God has done for you. And this is how we're, we're, and this is how I'm bringing this in to the telling of the story, right? We believe that this is a story, a tr- the true story. Read with me in verse 16. I want to read the rest of the chapter. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him in, in Massa. You shall dil- diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out your enemies from before you as the Lord promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we, we when were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showered and showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteous, righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before our Lord as he has commanded us. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 78. It's not going to be as long as this last one. Psalm 78, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, 
things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their, from their children, but tell, them, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to, the, to their children, to the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now I want you to, re- to turn to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth. In the seas and all deeps, he it, he it is who makes the clouds rise to the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who is who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Shehan, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. In Deuteronomy 6 and Psalms like Psalm 78 and 135, we see God's people retelling the story to instill in them a worldview. We're supposed to tell our children this story so that they will see how the world really works. This is what Western pluralism denies, that there is one story for all mankind. The Bible, however, in stating that one God made all the world and is looking forward to the way that he might redeem them by bringing light to the nations and to call the Gentiles to himself, brings all of mankind into view that there is one meta-narrative, one true story for all mankind. This is the story of the Bible. This is the importance of, over, of understanding the meta-narrative, the overarching story of what God is doing for his people. And we remind ourselves of this story to enrich each other so that we might fulfill what we've been called to do as part of this story to bring people into the story whether it's our children or our co-workers or whether it's the people of the nations. 
This is the story of Scripture, is that God is redeeming a people for himself so that they might enjoy him. Right? This is what, this, it's what my summary was at the very beginning. So they might know him, live in, live under, and enjoy the love of the God who created all things. Psalm 105 is very similar to the ones we just read. This hymn celebrates God's faithfulness dealing with his people and is calling the people to live in faithfulness because of what God had done for them. Psalm 106 is a historical psalm that recites a series of events in Israel's history to illustrate God's steadfast love that Israel might repent. There's one story. There's one story. God has created all things and he's seeking his people out of love and compassion and grace. Now our question is, do we lay hold to those promises? Do we want to participate in God's redemptive promises? Lastly, we want to look at um, the Old Testament as Christian scripture. So clearly, we have New Testament passages such as 1 Corinthians 10, Luke 24, and 1 Peter 1 that call us to interpret the Old Testament to be a participant of this overarching story. Because as I always tell our, our students, um, it's, it's pretty incredible that this story isn't actually about us. Back to our Western individualism, we, we want everything to be about us. But nothing in this story is about us. Everything in this story is about who God is and what he is doing. And as God's people in the New Testament, we have the same obligation as the people of the Old Testament. Do we believe in this story? Do we believe that this God that the Bible presents is the true God and that he will do what he says that he will do? And do we believe in the Christ, God's Messiah, who from the beginning of Scripture throughout all of Scripture has promised to bring the fulfillment of God's blessing to his creation. And I think understanding the Old Testament as Christian scripture, um, I, I put on here some ways of how we can interpret Did you guys get that, uh, that the handout, the, first, the bottom of the first page, and I believe part of the second page, is that there are seven ways really to interpret Old Testament as Christian scripture. And again, we like, real, I, we like bulletins. I, I ripped this off of my um, Old Testament professor from seminary. Um, all seven of these, I just copied and pasted it from my notes. I'm fully aware that that's what I did. 
I wanted you to also be aware of what I did. Um, the reason I put this on here is I grew up under number one. I looked at the Old Testament and really just saw the Old Testament as a list of truths that we as Christians need to go, needed to go unearth and hold and see how God is still true then and is still true now. And really the story and the people of the Old Testament didn't matter. All that mattered was the truths, was, was the doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that's what my church taught. I'm saying that's what I personally did. Now, um, I'm a mixture of number four through seven. <laughs> right? So, number one and number two really don't care about the historical story. They really, they really don't care about who those people were, what God's promises meant for them, and how they could live as a faithful member of God's people. Because what, what I hope you hear me preach, especially when we're in the Old Testament, what I hope you hear me preach is context. That this story mattered to this people. That God was asking them to do something. Yes, it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But you don't have to know Christ to understand what God is doing for his people. Because if you have to understand Christ, there's no hope for anybody in the Old Testament. All of their hope was bound in the promises of God. Now, my professor, Dr. Collins, who wrote this, and actually wrote the chapter of the book that we're reading right now, of, he, he's the one that wrote the um, theology of the Old Testament. Um, he's in number seven. His, his last name is Collins. He's in number seven. Um, and something that he, would, that he actually has said is that if you're preaching from the Old Testament, you actually don't have to talk about Christ to be a faithful preacher. And I would actually disagree. Because if Jesus is the answer key, why wouldn't you talk about him? I, I understand his emphasis. He, wants us to, he wanted us as students, and he wants the church to see that God's story of redemption is for his people. You don't have to do anything, is what he says. You don't have to do anything except receive grace upon grace. But the fullest realization of that grace is in Jesus. And so what I hope to always do, um, and anyone who preaches from this pulpit, especially from preaching from the Old Testament, is to show what that text meant for that people then. But ultimately, how that passage is fulfilled in Christ, because that's the way that it applies to us now. But what I hope you see is that the, the narrative of the story is important. All of this is kind of wrapped up together of how we understand the story. The same God that loved his people and made promises in the Old Testament is the same God who loves his people and made promises in the New Testament. 
who at the fullness of time revealed his son so that we might know, that we might see God's great love for us, his people. Because God deals with us through Jesus. Right? This is the part I didn't fill in earlier. We, we always have a representative here. Whether it's Abraham, Moses, or David, or the priests, especially the high priest, or I'll, I'll put it on there, or the prophets, which Moses was the prophet too. God always deals with his people through a representative. In the Old Testament, we have a new representative the second Adam the greater Moses, the son of David, the greater high priest, and the great prophet. God deals with his people through Jesus. This is the story's all about. Any questions? Great, let's pray.